Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I am your host, Persis Poku. Every now and then, the Lord blesses me to encounter a book that inspires me and takes me to another level. And when I'm reading my materials, I often think about the church and how they can be edified. And for today's episode, we have a treat. There's a book that I would like all of the listeners to add to their library is called Cold Case Christianity with a subtitle of A Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospel. And the author is Jim Warner Wallace, and he's done an excellent job of giving us a defense for our faith through the paradigm of a cold case detective. And we are blessed for this episode to have uh, Jim Wallace, Jim Warner Wallace, on the show with us. And so we want to welcome him. And Jim, thank you so much for, for being on Sound Reasoning. Oh, Perseus, I'm so glad to be here. Are you kidding? I'm just glad to have another brother in apologetics. We actually get out there and do the work. And it is a hard a hard case sometimes to make, right? So I, I was hoping to provide a resource for people that would be maybe a little more culturally accessible. And so that's what I was hoping to do with Cold Case. The title itself is very provocative, and I love it. it. It catches your attention. But please explain to us briefly your uh, transformation or transition from atheism to uh, Christianity. Well, you know, I was somebody who was never raised in the church, never raised around a, a lot of Christians. My dad's a pretty committed uh, uh, atheist, and my mom was kind of a cultural Catholic, but we weren't really engaged in uh, really understanding what Christianity presented. And I really, as I grew up, I was more and more committed to a philosophically natural worldview. You know, I really believe that science would have all the answers. And and I was a guy who followed in my dad's footsteps. He was a police officer for nearly 30 years. And so I, although I had spent some time in the arts, I ended up back in law enforcement and ultimately ended up as a detective working homicides. And now for the last 12 or 13 years, I've been working nothing but, um, but a cold case homicides. These are unsolved murders. There's no statute of limitations on murder. So when I first got interested in uh, Christianity, I really wasn't trying to prove it wrong, wasn't trying to be... I was uh, definitely described as kind of an obstinate, angry atheist by the people who knew me, and I was more than one to debate uh, Christianity and atheism with anybody who wanted to have a debate. But but I wasn't really setting out to disprove it. I, I just... Uh, got interested in uh, mining out the kind of uh, wise words of Jesus. You know, like you might in, encounter Baha'u'llah or, um, you know, or Buddha or right. any other ancient sage. And uh, just was planning on kind of reading through those words to kind of see what the vetted ancient wisdom of Jesus was all about. And the problem, of course, is, as you know, is that these are embedded in historical accounts that really kind of beg the question, you know, kind of beg you to look and, and examine them for their reliability. I mean, I would have initially discarded anything miraculous about the Gospels, but the more I looked at them, I just decided, hey, let's just apply the same kind of standard I would apply to any uh, witness who would come to me and say anything about a case. And sometimes people will lie to you. 
because they want to be in a, a high-profile Dateline case, or they want to be, you know, they want to help out their brother-in-law who's accused of the murder, whatever it may be. And you have to vet these people. Right. And I thought, let me just try to use the techniques that I use to vet uh, cases of my own and see if what it tells me about Christianity. That's really what the book's uh, a description of my journey, kind of learning uh, what I did learn about the reliability of the Gospels through that process. For the courtesy of our listeners, please share with us what you have done in terms of your profession, uh, your relationship with some of the shows that's been on TV. Well, we, we started um, a number of years ago as kind of a collateral duty. Not every agency has got a cold case team, and usually it's a bigger agency that's going to have a team that's dedicated to just work your old unsolved murders. Not every city is going to be so active that you're going to have enough of these unsolved murders to, 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 to be uh, fruitful. We did. We had about 30 that I looked at that were really, I thought, workable in some way, uh, going back to about 1970, maybe there's one before that, but I mean, about that period of time. And so I was working these uh, as a collateral duty, and eventually um, it becomes all absorbent. It takes about two years to work a single cold case to fruition, all the way to you know uh, getting somebody in jail, and then about another year and a half to two years to go to trial with that case. So it really did demand us to create a cold case team, and I had a, a, a chief at the time who was just uh, insightful enough and kind of uh, forward-thinking enough to say, hey, we, let's see if we can do this. And, and we were productive. We, again, we'd, we would do about one case every two years. These cases grabbed the attention in Los Angeles County of uh, the, the press. And so we, we were on, uh, it wasn't long before, we were covered by initially by small local agencies and Fox News and then Court TV. And then we had three episodes on Dateline. We've got another case going to Dateline, which goes to trial in about a month. So... I've got one last case, and then I will be completely done. Um, so I, I wrote the book really in one of my busiest years in terms of, of, of trial cases that I had. I had two going that year, but uh, managed to squeak this out. And uh, this is why I hope it'll, it'll – the idea here, as you know from reading it, is to provide you with some insight into what cold case detectives do and then turn a corner and apply that to the Christian worldview. I appreciate that because what you're doing – really reinforces the fact of general revelation, how God has given us insight, whether you're saved or unsaved, into principles or methods that affects all of humanity. That's so right. so you're using these skills to apply it towards our faith. And from reading the book, I can see the benefits of why you did what you did through the, uh, the aid of power of the Holy Spirit. So now let us dive into some of the contents of the book. You talk about uh, the term "believe that" versus "believe in." What what are the differences? Well, and this is something that I experienced as as an investigator, and, and you 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 know this if you're a police officer and you're wearing a bulletproof vest. That typically we have to wear these every day, even on days we don't feel like wearing it. You know, days when it's really hot, not convenient. You gain a few extra pounds. You don't want to stick it on under your under your shirt, but you have to wear the thing every day because you know from having shot rounds into the vest yourself as a trainee usually, you know that this thing can stop rounds. Uh, you've seen it happen. You've seen it do it. And I've had a couple of cases, and one in particular that I wrote about in the book, in which an officer involved shooting with, took place, and the officer uh, kind of had the, you know, kind of lost his timing on this, this standoff with a suspect who got the draw on him before he could even pull his gun out of his holster. And so he said, told me afterwards that he just knew that Standing in front of this guy who had a gun pointed at him, he was only a few feet away. He really had to trust his vest. He had to just tense his stomach muscles, and he was prepared to take a round or two 
before he could return fire. And, and that's a moment in which the belief that the vest can save your life based on what you've seen it do in tests and in your own shooting at it is different than trusting in the vest to do the very thing that you know it can do by way of test. And so I think this is a big difference in terms of our, our, where we stand as Christians. You know, we, a lot of us might believe that it's true, but we haven't trusted in it yet. We haven't stepped out and made a case and had to see if it'll fly. And, and for a lot of us, we haven't done that, quite honestly, Perseus, right. because we haven't tested it. We haven't shot rounds at it to know that it can withstand the test. We haven't examined why we believe this is true. And so we're far less likely to trust in it the way we could if we first went through belief that before we arrived at belief in. So I think it is an important process for all of us if we want to have an impact on a culture that is growingly post-Christian. Right. I think now is the time to examine why we believe this is true, so that when push comes to shove and you're in a setting where lots of times we just be quiet, we don't want to identify ourselves as Christians and take all the abuse we're about to take, we will actually have the confidence to stand tall because we know that it's true. Excellent. I appreciate those illustrations. And that there was another term that you used in the book, abductive reasoning. Uh, what is it, and how can we use it to argue for the reliability of the Gospels? Yeah, I think a lot of folks who are more philosophically inclined, maybe have a background in philosophy, would, would, would say, you know, abductive reasoning, can you really trust it? Because it's also known as reasoning to the best inference or making an inferential reasoning. Right. Uh, and, and sometimes it's connected to Bayesian logic and, and this idea that really, you, it's, it, and some people will say, well, all you're really doing is just kind of taking probability, aren't you? It's just about how probable something is. Well, let's back up for a second. Abductive reasoning is when we make two lists in our mind any time we encounter any case. We make a list of all the evidence, that's the first E-list, and a list of all the explanations, that's the second E-list. And we come at a, a conclusion by, comparis- by comparing one uh, list to the other, the list of evidences to the list of explanations. In the end, one of these explanations will be the far most reasonable given the evidence that's in the room. So whatever it is you're examining, everyone does this, by the way. If you've got kids who come home late and they offer an explanation as to why they're late, you know, you're in, your, in your mind you're going to have a list of all the evidences. Do they smell like alcohol? You know, how right. late are they really? How how they parked right. the car at the curb? And then you're going to look at all the possible explanations, and you're going to determine which of these explanations is most reasonable. Now, is this a fair approach? when it comes to determining whether or not Christianity is true or whether or not theism is true. I think it is, and let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. This is the very approach we use in trials every day, where I'm going to give you a list of evidences as a prosecutorial team. The defense team is going to give you a list of evidences. Most of the time those are the exact same list, by the way. And then each of us is going to give you a variety of explanations. Uh, We're going to give you one that points to the defendant. And the defendant may throw out a number of, of alternatives that are really an attempt to distract you from ours. And so in the end, you're going to have to compare evidences to explanations and make the most reasonable conclusion. This is why the standard of proof in jury trials is a, beyond a reasonable doubt, right. not beyond a possible doubt. Are there always possibilities? Of course. I mean, anything's possible. Right. But what matters is what's evidentially reasonable. And it seems to me that if that process of coming to evidential reasonableness... <laughs> is sufficient in trials in which we're going to determine the fate of a suspect, his fate, whether he's going to go to the death penalty or he's going to be in jail the rest of his life, 
that I think that's a reasonable standard we can also use for our eternal fate. Right. And it's really, if you think about it as humans, that's about as good as you're going to do anyway. If you think you're going to be able to remove every possible doubt, or you can only be, uh, I need to be at 99.6%, how would you ever even know if you're, if you're there? It really, it comes down to, do I have left anything other than possible doubts? We're always going to have possible doubts. But the question is, are they supported by evidence? And if they're not, learn to take those possible doubts, those little nagging possibilities that really aren't supported by evidence, and stick those in your pocket and move forward based on this standard of proof we call beyond a reasonable doubt. I appreciate that. Um, you touched on something in your book, and what you just shared with us begged this question, so that's why I'm, I'm posing it to you. There are those believers, uh, they are brothers and sisters, and some are even listening to this show, and they are wondering why are we wasting time arguing from a philosophical uh, perspective when we should just have faith in God and not use reason at all? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I can tell you when I first wrote the book and uh, people started to kind of weigh in on it, um, that you know, Christianity is in many ways divided in a couple of different camps here. There are those of us who might see the value in an evidential approach. And there are those of us who would say, no, look, if God's Word says it, we need to presuppose the truth of God's Word. And, and really, to, to think that you humans, we as humans, even have the faculty or reasoning ability that would allow us to fairly uh, weigh the evidence is, a, is, a, is, a, is not even true. And, and Scripture talks a lot about that. So, so the question then becomes, what value does this kind of evidential approach have to begin with? And so what I try to do, is, I often have to do this, by the way, is make a case for case-making. You have to make a case for why you think you should make a case to begin with. Right. And, and if you do this, staying in Scripture, you'll find some things that are quite interesting. For example, you'll see that Jesus was an amazing case-maker. Jesus was an evidentialist. He often came in and said things in John, for example, like, hey, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've offered you. Right. He would come into a town, heal, and then herald. Heal, then preach. In other words, he's, let me establish who I am so you can see evidentially who I am. Now that you know who I am, listen to what I'm about to say to you. So he would heal, and then he would preach. And even when John the Baptist had serious doubts about the identity of Jesus and sent his followers to Jesus and said, hey, John sent us, and he wants to know, are you the one? I'm thinking to myself, really, after all this time, John's still asking that silly right. question. But he was. And Jesus does what? He doesn't go back and say, hey... You should just have faith. Faith is about you know, believing in things without evidence. No, instead, he performs miracles in front of John's disciples and then says, go back and tell John what you just saw. And then for 40 days in Acts 1, after the resurrection, it says that Jesus stayed with the disciples and gave them 40 days of convincing proofs. So it seems to me that there's good um, grounding right. for the approach we're taking, even from the life and ministry of Jesus, who did not appear to be afraid to support his claims with evidence in the real natural world in which his disciples were living and sitting with him. In that world, he provided them with, with physical evidence. And I think that's something that we can also adopt that approach. As a matter of fact, the disciples then, in the book of Acts, when they're out uh, preaching the word, what are they doing? They're, they're over and over again saying, hey, the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of Jesus, and we saw it with our own eyes. It right. is a very evidential approach using direct eyewitness testimony to make a claim about something they saw. And I think that's just another example of the kind of evidential approach of the Gospels. Thank you so much. We had the distinct privilege a few weeks ago 
of having Dr. Gary uh, Habermas with us uh, to talk about the resurrection. And in his book, he talked about the minimal facts approach. And I also see the same term in your book. Uh, What is it and why should we as believers be interested in the minimal facts approach? Yeah, I love his work, by the way. I I saw you had him on the show. That's really great to be able to have him. Uh, And he's a great guy. So so I think that this is very important to us, for me anyway, given this first thing we talked about, which is abductive reasoning. abductive, Abductive reasoning works when you have two lists the list of evidences, and the list of explanations. In order to get a list of evidences, to look at the case for the resurrection, for example, you'd have to kind of decide, well, what are the basic pieces of evidence in the room? What are the minimum facts or the minimum minimum uh, evidences? And so Gary's done a great job of going back and saying, hey, let's take a look at all of the scholarship related to the resurrection and the story of the resurrection from all kinds of scholars, both you know uh, the ones who are more conservative to all the ones who are even less conservative, maybe just some that even are agnostic in their beliefs. And let's just see, can we make a list of kind of the top you know, 10 or 12 basic minimum facts that almost everyone agrees on? Because if that's the case, we could make a list then of what we would consider to be the minimum pieces of evidence in the room. We could begin this process of abductive reasoning. And as an atheist, I, I saw, I mean, I, I didn't see Gary's work. I don't think Gary had even written the book until many years later, but, but I wasn't familiar with that approach. But I was uh, familiar with the, the kind of minimal facts about Jesus that I would have accepted as a nonbeliever. They weren't as robust as the ones that Gary has identified. I would have only accepted three or four. I would have said, yeah, I, I think I can believe that uh, Jesus lived. I'm not one of those Jesus mythers. I think there's more than good enough reason to believe he lived and died on a cross, but I would have rejected the resurrection. I would have ab- agreed that there was an empty tomb, because let's face it, if you want to end this thing early, just show the empty tomb, right. brought out Jesus' body, or get the initial eyewitnesses to recant, and none of that seemed to happen. And the third thing I would have uh, argued was that, yeah, I would have believed, I think, that the disciples made claims about the resurrected Jesus. They, uh, either they believed it or they, they, you know, were lying intentionally as a group. But the, I would have believed, I would have accepted the fact they made claims. And maybe the fourth thing I would have accepted was these guys were like super committed, almost to the point right. of really crazy. Like they were transformed by their commitment to tell this story. If it's a lie or whatever it is, they were really committed. As a matter of fact, had a huge impact on the empire in just one generation. Right. So those are the kind of four minimums that I think that as a non-believer I could have held to, still rejecting the deity of Christ, still rejecting the resurrection. And then, so that's my list of evidence in the room. That's my e-list for evidence. The e-list for explanations, I think you, you know, I won't go into all that detail, but there are six or so that I think were naturalistic that I as an atheist could hold. And then one, of course, which is the Christian explanation that it actually occurred. And so what we do in this process of abductive reasoning is we simply look at that list of four evidences, and the list of seven explanations, and we go back and forth weighing the liabilities and advantages of each explanation. Now, you know, Perseus, that every explanation, I don't care what case you ever work, has liabilities and advantages. Right. Even the case I have, which is the truth about a particular suspect, does possess liabilities. Every case has liabilities. So it turns out that the Christian explanation has a liability that for me as an atheist for many years was just too hard to overcome. And the liability was is that it requires a supernatural event. Right. And I would have rejected any such thing. But if you're starting off investigating the case about whether or not something supernatural can occur, it's not a good strategy, investigative strategy, to begin by rejecting your conclusion, whatever it is you're looking for. 
I can't walk into a crime scene and say, I'm looking for, uh, you know, uh, the, like why well, I, I list this in the book. I had a case in which we walked in, and one investigator was so sure that this suspect was going to be a boyfriend of the of the victim, that we spent a week looking for a boyfriend she didn't have. Right. You don't walk into crime scenes with the conclusion in mind. You have to leave the, your conclusions suspended for a minute and see where the evidence leads. So you can't walk into the investigation about whether or not there's something supernatural with a conclusion in mind. There's nothing supernatural. That just kills your investigation before you even begin. So it turns out that the one liability for the Christian explanation is something we can actually control. It's our presuppositional right. bias. Right. So... Right. I, I appreciate that. Now, can you talk to us about the gospel writers? And I really enjoyed reading this portion of the book, the, uh, how the gospel writers are eyewitnesses to something that occurred. And you use certain criteria to test why you believed the gospel writers could be trusted. And, uh, and could, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I list in the book uh, a, a series of questions that here in California we allow jurors to consider when they're evaluating witnesses. And there's a big list, but it kind of breaks down into four large categories that I use four words to describe. The questions we're really doing when we examine eyewitnesses for their reliability is we're really asking, number one, were you really there? Because you could be lying because you want some advantage to call yourself a witness when you weren't even there. Right. So whether you're present or not, that's big. Two, uh, you know, can there somehow, there's some way we can corroborate what you're saying with some other kind of touch point Every corroborative piece of evidence is limited, so we have to kind of look at that and say, is there some limited way we could corroborate your statement? Uh, three, uh, have you been accurate and consistent and honest over time? Have you changed your story? Because if that's the case, we really shouldn't trust you. And third, a uh, fourth rather, is uh, uh, do you possess some bias that would cause you to want to lie to us in the beginning? So if we can look at a witness and determine that they really were there, they can be corroborated externally, and or even internally based on the consistency of their statements, and they haven't changed their story over time, and they don't possess any bias, well, then we're told that we should consider that guy or gal reliable. And we shouldn't, you know, distrust uh, from the get-go. We should instead trust unless we have a reason not to. So that's the position we kind of take. And I took that four-part template and just examined the Gospels in those four areas. Now, not everyone's going to be in agreement, of course, uh, with the conclusions I draw, but I think in the way you could test and measure any uh, ancient account, I can't imagine an account that could pass that test as well as the Gospel authors. And I try to illustrate that in those four dimensions, how well the Gospel authors pass that test. And given that that's the case, you're really kind of stuck having to make a final decision that really comes down to your bias in advance of supernaturalism. Because if this account is reliable, then you can't just pick and choose what you want out of the account. You're going to have to accept the whole thing. Because folks were making claims about the supernatural aspects of Jesus immediately, early in history, repeated often throughout the course of early church history. These are not late superstitions that were added to the account or late legends that grew over time. You're going to be stuck with a guy who rose from the dead. And you're going to have to figure out what to do with that guy. And that's Man. really the, 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 the question that God has for all of us for millennia here, is that what are you going to do with Jesus? Amen. So that's what we have to ask ourselves. And, and I think what this did for me is it allowed uh, this process kind of knocked down some of the walls that were standing between me and any presentation of the gospel. And that's what we really do, right? We talk about apologetics, we talk about Christian case-making, and, 
in Ace Apologetics, you know, we got, you've got a great set of resources there. What are you trying to do? You're trying to knock down barriers that prevent people from hearing the gospel. And in the end, uh, my goal is not just to knock down barriers and win a fight or win an argument or win the best case about the barriers. My goal is the gospel. Amen. We're just trying to knock down the barriers that get us to the gospel. We thank and, you so much, Jim, uh, for your responses and for this excellent book. And again, if you're listening to us, this is uh, Jim Warner Wallace. He's the author of the Cold Case Christianity book, and we encourage everyone to uh, get it and read it. And it's a great resource. So, Jim, thank you for sharing with our listeners, and we will be in touch, God willing. And we want to thank you for your generosity. Well, Perseus, I, you're doing great work there. I'm just glad to be some small part of it. Keep up the good work. Okay, have a blessed day. You too. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy messages has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.